Good morning. And welcome to Boulevard Bible Chapel. It's good to be with you. I um, <clears throat> forgot to tell Brian this morning to announce, for those of you who were praying for um, Alice White's cousin's family, um, Greg, uh, he had an incident down at the beach. He was just in town for a day. And his workplace that he was doing a contract for didn't have the equipment. It was on back order, so they went to the beach to have a good day. And... and uh, Something happened. He just, his buddy found him. He was under the water suddenly. And uh, they brought him up, did CPR. He was in the hospital for the last week or so. And Alice White sent an email from Africa to the saints in Florida saying, can anyone go visit them? And so um, those of you who are here Wednesday and praying for Greg, it looked like maybe there was some hope, but um, he went to be with the Lord yesterday morning at 7 o'clock. And so um, kind of puts life in perspective for us, doesn't it? <clears throat> it's a beautiful day. And the last thing on our mind is sometimes the very reality that none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And so the reality of what we're talking about here these few weeks about the tabernacle, the wilderness tabernacle that God gave the pattern to Moses when they were traveling in the wilderness, its importance can be seen even in these events. Because you see, what we're going to learn is that God desires to dwell with men. And he wants us to know how we can do that. And the pattern established in the tabernacle is the clue. It's just one of many clues in the pattern as it's seen, these principles and throughout Scripture. And so as we spend a little bit of time today in part of it, I hope that it will encourage you not only to know that God desires to have a relationship with you. He desires to draw near to you that you may draw near to Him. That you would be challenged to consider... Do you know for sure how it is that you can approach that God? Because the pattern is very clear in the scriptures. And you know, the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, as we think it through in our own minds, but its end is the way of death. And so we don't want anyone to be mistaken in this issue of how does someone like you and me, a sinner as God describes us, approach a holy and perfect God. Well, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 25 for our reading this morning. And as you turn there, I'd like to give you a little background as to where we have been. All right, we are going through the book of Exodus. And the reason we're camped out on this particular portion for as long as we are, not only because the beautiful pictures that are revealed there, but you see, that's where God decided to camp out in his scriptures, right? The first 12 chapters of Exodus, we find that the nation of Israel has spent 400 years in Egypt. When Joseph was sold into slavery and, and, and he was there, when Pharaoh had his dreams and it was revealed to Pharaoh through that dream that there was going to be a great famine. And so all the world was on the edge of death except God had provided salvation through uh, 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 this man Joseph who was able to help Egypt be prepared for the famine. And all the world came to them for food and, and Joseph's family came as well and they were there for 400 years but now a new king was there in Egypt who did not know Joseph and he made slaves of the people. He was afraid of them and the people began to cry out to God and so the first 12 chapters they're in Egypt in slavery and then God sends judgments against Egypt to cause Pharaoh to let them go. And so then from chapter 13 through 18 they're traveling in the wilderness and what we learn there is how God provided for them the bread that they needed to eat, the water they needed to live so that he could sustain them in a place where they could not sustain themselves in the wilderness. And then in chapter 19, they come to Mount Sinai. 
And from chapter 19 all the way through the end of the book to chapter 30, 40, Exodus 40, they are camped at Mount Sinai. And in chapters 19 through 24, God gives the Ten Commandments, the law to His people. And then from chapter 25 to the end of the book, it's God revealing to them the pattern for this tabernacle, this tent constructed in the wilderness so that they could meet with God and God can meet with them. And we see that very clearly in the passage before us today. As if you found Exodus 25, let's look right here in verses 8 and 9. This is a little review, so we won't stay here too long, but let's, let's take the time to note the heart of God. Because even from the beginning, right, if we go back to Genesis when God first created man, he came and he walked with man in the garden in the cool of the day. He wanted to have this relationship with this man that he had created. And so he would come. But see, sin had disturbed that relationship. And so the one day when he came after Adam and Eve had sinned, they were hiding from God. They did not know how they could approach God. But God dealt with their situation, didn't he? He, he took that animal's life and he made skins of animal skin. He made clothing of animal skin for them. The laying down of that life to be a covering for their sinfulness so that they could approach God once again. And <clears throat> now we see the nation of Israel, and they're traveling through the wilderness. What does it say here in Exodus 25, 8 and 9? And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. And according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Now, I had to chuckle when I saw that just so. Because a number of months ago, <clears throat> someone uh, passed along to us a violin that was small enough, too small for them to use and right, the right size for, for uh, one of our children to use. And, and, and we found ourselves someone who could give us a lesson. And um, <clears throat> we didn't have money for regular lessons, but he said, that's okay. When you're ready, you call me and we'll move on. And so months go by sometimes. But we, first lesson, he takes a look at the violin. He says, listen, you need to take this in and get new strings. Now... I, don't, I couldn't tell old strings from new strings, whether I was looking at them or heard them, but he knew all about them. And he said, when you take it in, you tell them, you want them to put new strings on and make it just so. Okay, sir, you tell them, just make it just so. To me, it didn't mean anything. But see, I'm not the expert. He knows when it's just so. And see, God is the one who is giving the pattern to the people for the tabernacle. And he says, you make it just so. And we go, what is that? The kind of music I like? You know, the, the kind of preacher who makes me laugh partway through and cry partway through? And, 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 and what does it mean to gather to God just so? Well, he's telling us in the Old Testament how he wanted the Israelites to come. Just so you shall make the tabernacle because it was important to God. And see, the reason we want to take the time here is because the Bible tells us this, doesn't it? John 14, 2, when Jesus was here on earth, he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Don't be distressed that I'm telling you I'm leaving. See, I'm leaving for this reason. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Because in my father's house, there are many mansions. He says, and if I go there, I will come again to receive you unto myself. See the heart of God. He wants us to be with him. Now, he's speaking of those disciples who already had understood the pattern that God had for how they could draw near. And so he said, I'm, I'm going ahead to prepare the place, and I'm going to come back. And we see the fulfillment of that all the way at the end of the, the New Testament in Revelation chapter 21, 
It says in verse 3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Here we are. We're coming to the new heaven and the new earth. And he's still talking about the tabernacle. And he says, <clears throat> And he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And you want to look at what we have to look forward to. He says, No, no tears, no death, no crying, no more pain. The Lamb of God is there. His throne is there, but nothing unclean can be there. That sin problem that is now separating us from God must find a way to be dealt with. And he tells us how as we look at the wilderness tabernacle where we find ourselves again today. Now, we've looked at part of it, and so uh, I'm just going to read the passage that goes with today, and then we'll kind of take our journey into the tabernacle itself to take a look at more detail at the section we're going to look at today. And we find ourselves then in Exodus 25, in verse 23. <clears throat> and God is speaking, and he says, You shall also make a table of acacia wood. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Forgive me. That's tonight's uh, passage. Today we're starting in verse 31. Same chapter, verse 31. <clears throat> you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand on one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch, and with an ornamental knob and a flower, and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower, and there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the, of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold and you shall make seven lamps for it and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it and its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold and it shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain amen and can we just Speak to the Lord in prayer once again. Father, we want to thank you for what you have revealed to us. We have so many questions, more than you actually tell us in your word, but we thank you that you've given us all that we need to know so that we can, number one, draw near to you and you draw near to us so that we can have the hope and assurance of what you desire will actually be our portion. And we pray that, Lord, today as we take a look at this, we won't just look at a historical picture. We won't just look at, 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 at furniture in a tent but you would teach us how to continue to walk in your presence, even as we live in this, this, this earthly scene, waiting for you to come back to take us to the heavenly realm where Jesus promised to take us so long ago. And we thank you for this hope that we do have, that even as the King family today is sorrowing from the loss of their son, they do not sorrow as those who have no hope because they know that just as their son had put faith in Christ, all of us who do that can have the hope that you will fulfill your promise to take us to be with yourself. For Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
and uh, um, anyone who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And so we thank you for these great promises, and we ask you to reveal to us the ones that apply to us today so we can lean on them, stand on them, put them into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> okay, so here we are. Now, <clears throat> I tried to find a picture that I liked that actually had the gate facing east because that's the direction that God tells them. And so really, if we were to take a look at it, did I get the one here? Oh, it'll come later. Um, <clears throat> Really, the, the gate should be facing east. But, you know, as you take a look at this tent, when, when the Israelites camped, they were like you see here. All their tents were pitched around it, and the tabernacle was at the center. So when God says, I will dwell with them and be in their midst, he meant it literally. Their whole camp revolved around the place where God was. And, you know, that's a good practical application for you and me, too, isn't it? Because we can order our lives around all kinds of things. We can order it around entertainment around our jobs, around our reputations, about the pursuit of money and riches and toys and pleasures. And we can forget about the most important thing. God would have us to order our lives around himself. But as you were on the outside of this tabernacle, there was a fence, and you really couldn't see what was going on inside. You might be able to hear some of the noise. You could hear people talking about it. Maybe you'd been inside once before yourself, but you really couldn't see it. And so in order to get in, you would have to come to the one gate which would allow you into this courtyard. And again, almost all of the things that we talk about are going to be pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the sinner who is separated from God in this world today, they can hear about this dwelling together with God and having a relationship with him. They look around and try to figure out what it's all about, but all they see is this covering. They can't really see what's going on inside. But you and I who know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know the work that he's done inside of our hearts. And so we get excited about that work that he's done. But sometimes people on the outside are like, why do you spend so much time going to that church? They talk about what it's going to be like in heaven, and they think they're just going to sit around and sing all the time and praise God. I mean, it sounds boring. But, you know, when you looked at the tent, it might have looked boring. But if you could go inside, we're going to take a look inside this sanctuary covering today. And if we could go inside, we would be blown away. But the place to start was the sinner coming to the gate, knowing that there's only one way in. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except how? Through me. And so the very gate itself is a picture of Christ. And so you come in, and you first piece of furniture, we, we talked about these two pieces in the courtyard last week, the brazen altar and the laver full of water for washing. And see, the sinner could come in, but what happened here was the most important thing. There had to be a sacrifice to pay the penalty for his sin. And so all these people who were coming were bringing their bulls and their goats and whatever it was that was going to be burned up. And that was where the penalty for sin was paid. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. The wages of sin is death. And so for it to be paid, there had to be this sacrifice for sin. And that brazen altar covered with brass was made for that very purpose. And once that person came in with their, their acceptable substitute sacrifice and it was offered up on that, that brazen altar, they were their sin was declared atoned for, covered. They were forgiven by God and they could move on, right? But now, <clears throat> once they had this restored relationship with God, for an Israelite, that's as far as he could come. See, because the labor... Oh, there's a 
There's the altar itself where they would make those sacrifices. The laver where the priest labored was for his own ceremonial washings where he could go into that tent, that sanctuary, that holy place, where he could then bring the prayers of the people, where, where he could minister to the Lord and then come back and minister to the people. That was the place of the priest. But as far as the sinner who came to see his sins forgiven, that's as far as he could go unless you were a priest yourself. And so we talked about this place of cleansing last week so that someone could go in before the presence of God. And we need not only the cleansing of our sin as it's purged by that fire of God's judgment, now the washing of God, Jesus talks about the washing of the water of the word of God that purifies our hearts and makes us acceptable before him, blameless. And so this was a work that was happening in the outer courts. But still, that's what you could see, but not everyone could partake of it because they weren't priests. And so... The priests had the responsibility then of going from the laver into this tabernacle. This is really what they called the tabernacle, the tent. And it had two compartments, and it had all these coverings over it. And although there was beautiful coverings of red and blue and purple and white linen, and, and they, were covered, they were all covered over by these like badger skins to make it waterproof and last for years and to come. But that's why it looked so drab on the outside. But if you could get into the inside, the walls were of gold. And it was a beautiful place, but only the priest could go inside there to see that. And um, today we want to take a look at what was going on inside that place. Now, there was two compartments, and the one back here is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And only the high priest himself could go back there once a year. But what was happening in this first uh, uh, section, the holy place, the priest would go daily in the morning and the evening in order to minister to the Lord there. And it's that that takes place that we're going to see right here with the furniture that's there. Now, the first piece, there's three pieces of furniture there, and the first one is this lampstand that we read about today. And I think the old King James says candlestick. But the, uh, if we can make just a correction for understanding, right? A candlestick, kind of like the menorah you see at Hanukkah time, it has candles. But see, when the candle burns down, it goes out and it's done. But the lampstand, it was, had oil lamps on it. And so the priest would put new oil into it so that it could burn continually, right? And so the picture of what the lampstand represents, that's an important distinction. Because God commanded that it would burn continually before him day and night. And he wants it to be continually burning. And we'll see what that means as we go along. Now, <clears throat> I was happy to find the drawings that I found for the most part because they were all kind of similar and they belong together, but I was very displeased with our candle, our, 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 our lampstand, because uh, it doesn't go along with the pictures of the most reliable places that talk about the way God designed it. And I, I don't want to take away from the artist's um, ability, but if we take a look, it's interesting. In uh, um, <clears throat> in Rome, in in Italy, there is actually a um, an arch that when when the the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, and Titus came back and they celebrated his victory. Over the next several years, they constructed this big arch. And interesting, on the arch, if you were to be able to look inside, it has this quote talking about how uh, Titus uh, had conquered the people. There is a picture of this victory. And interestingly enough, if we can zoom in just a little bit, notice when they're bringing back the spoils from the battle, there is a picture of what the lampstand looked like in that time. And so <clears throat> we don't have to just guess. We can see that it had, as the scriptures speak of, a base, a main shaft, 
with three branches coming out on each side. And I was trying to figure out how they did the little knobs and the bowls and the cups. And, and some of that detail is not really readily available. But you can see uh, the way that it had originally been constructed because it was still there until 70 AD. Now, interestingly enough, oh, there's a closer up <clears throat> view of it right there. Now, interestingly enough, you know that the tabernacle, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And um, the Jewish people are waiting until they, get, they can build a new temple. And this is the lampstand that's waiting to go in it. And it's actually held there, um, <clears throat> waiting to be brought in there in Cardo. And uh, uh, during the Feast of Lights at Hanukkah time, they take, they take it and use it. And um, there's a close-up. So there is their modern rendition of the same, and they try to make it somewhat like the original. But here we are. Okay. What is there that we can learn from this golden lampstand? First of all, as I said, verse 31 says, you shall also make a lampstand. And so it's going to be an oil lamp that can continually burn. Now, he says to make it of pure gold. Now, as you've been here for some of the other pieces, you'll realize that some of the pieces were made of wood, and then they were... They were covered with gold, and so it was gold-plated. And so you could see the gold, but this one was different in that it says, I want you to make it out of pure gold. <clears throat> and uh, uh, he says, in addition to that, um, that it should be, the lampstand shall be a hammered, work. So what they did then is it says they took this one talent's weight of gold. It doesn't tell us the actual size, but it says take this one talent's weight worth of gold and they started hammering at it to make it form into this piece. And so you have to ask yourself, well, what is the significance? And um, I've got to say, some of this is difficult, and this is what I struggle with in some of my studies. Uh, there are pictures of Christ here because Jesus said I am the light of the world John chapter 1 clearly declares that in him was life and he was <clears throat> he gives light oh, excuse me I'm mixing up several verses here all at once <clears throat> um, John chapter 1 speaking of Christ and him being the light says in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Now, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So, see, the idea of going into this place, the holy place, where we now having had our sins forgiven, we want to approach God, we have to realize that it's dark in there. Without some sort of source of light, the, tent, the coverings are there. You can't see from the outside. You get inside, you close the door behind you, and you can't see anything if there had not been light already there. And so as you approach, there is the candlestick, and it's burning, the lampstand, sorry, and it's burning. But see, it was already there. It's to picture the deity of Christ. He came from heaven. And so as we approach God... Uh, now, see, there's not a verse that specifically says that gold represents that, but we're, we, we say, well, what is the significance? And so we, <clears throat> we certainly know that it's a picture of Christ, of the light. And see, the interesting thing is, those who try to serve God without coming through the gate at the altar where their sin is forgiven by that sacrifice that substitutes for themselves, they can try to serve God all they want, but they're in darkness. 
They don't have the light. And so it's only those who know Christ who go in, and Christ has, has, has shined his light on them. So now they have a function in that place as they draw near to God. And see, the imagery here is, is meant to teach the people of Israel for the priests. But see, in the New Testament, the Bible says if you trust in Christ as your Savior, he's made you a priest. And he wants you to draw near to God, but we need the light of Christ. And so in order to do anything, that's the starting place. And that's why he put it the first in the order. He, we need to understand the importance of the light. And see, because now we can see around to, to know what's there and what needs to be done. But it's a pure gold. It doesn't have these impurities. And Christ had no impurities. He was very pure. And <clears throat> he was an impeccable character. But notice it says, in order to give us that light, it was to be a hammered work. And it reminds us that in order for Christ to be the light, to drive away the darkness of sin in our hearts. He had to be beaten. He had to suffer. The hammer of God would come down on him to take care of my sin, to provide the means for giving light to your soul and to mine. And so every time that priest would go in, and, and there, would be, there would be, as was mentioned before, the indentations, the the. The, the scarring done to the gold because of the hammer. And, you know, the Bible tells us that Jesus, after his resurrection, still had the scars in his hand to show the penalty that had been paid for your sin and for mine. And we, we thank God for that hammered work that he did for you and for me. Sure, go right ahead. Thank you. All right. Now, interesting about this, it says that its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And as I look at this lamp, and I say, you know, <clears throat> certainly Jesus said in a different parable in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. And so we see him as the main shaft of a vine providing life to the branches that are in it. And he says, whenever someone trusts in him, we are grafted in and we need to abide in that vine that his life may flow into us. And we see here in this candlestick, this lampstand, that as Christ is represented here in this main shaft and the branches come off each side, we see a picture of his relationship to his people. We derive our source from him, and yet he illuminates the world and the, the, the area around it through us also. Jesus told his disciples, you are the light of the world. We have no light in ourselves, but as Christ flow, his light flows in us, his light shines through us to the world. And it, it says that it's all one piece. We are united in one with Christ through the, through the death that he uh, performed on the cross for us, that hammered work, and now we are one piece with him, inseparable. And <clears throat> um, interesting to note, they're very similar, but they're, very, they're also unique, right? He's very specifically, these three are over here, these three are over here, and th they, they, they um, form a unity together, but yet each one is unique and different, and you know that's you and me. All very different, but together we make up the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and we are one in him, inseparable, a work that God has done through that accomplished work of Jesus Christ for you and for me. And each of those branches, it said, possess those bowls and knobs and flowers. And uh, interesting about that, it says that they were to be almond blossoms. And so we ask ourselves, well, what's the significance of almond blossoms? And if you recall... Back in the Old Testament, when they were traveling through the wilderness, there was a dispute over who ought to be the high priest. And so uh, God told Moses to have all the men who thought that they should be considered to bring out their rods 
and to mark them and lay them out. And the next morning, the, ro the rod that budded would reveal God's choice. And Aaron's rod was the one that budded almonds. And so we see in this very picture of the lampstand, the idea of life after death, right? That rod was dead. It could not produce any life, but here it was producing fruit. It blossomed. And you know, the life of Christ, when he died, he didn't stay in the grave. He came out and he's alive today. And his life as a resurrection life is a picture of what he is doing in us and will continue to do to take us beyond the grave to live forever with him. It's a miracle work that he himself does. Not only that, but I'm told that the almond blossom in Israel was the first one to bloom after the dead of winter. And so again, you see this sign of new life coming after that season of dryness. And, uh, and so God was picturing this idea of life and new life being had through Christ in that lampstand. Well, as we go on, once again, it says their knobs and their branches, verse 36, shall be of one piece and all one hammered piece of pure gold. Now he says, you shall make seven lamps for it and arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. There was a work for the priest to do when he went in there. Now we don't see the fullness of that work explained here. We see it in other places. But notice here it says, um, the purpose was that it may give light in front of it. And there was to be wick trimmers and trays of pure gold meant to trim the wicks and to uh, refill the lamps and those things. And um, it was to be made of this talent of pure gold. Now, if you'll just turn with me over to Leviticus chapter 24, I'd like to share with you a little bit about this work. Sorry, is that the place? <clears throat> I believe it is. <clears throat> All right. Oh, yes, here we go. Then the Lord spoke to, this is Leviticus 24, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, that is, for the lampstand, to make the lamps burn continually. And outside the veil of the testimony, in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron, he's the high priest, shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. And it shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. And so you see, there were two jobs that he had to do. In the evening when he came, he would take those trimmers and he would trim the wicks so that that crusty buildup on the wick would not snuff out the lamp. You know, in recent years, we've, uh, we never really had candles in my house growing up. Maybe it's because we were in a house full of just boys, but... Um, uh, we like to have candles lit in our house. And I've learned, you know, when that wick starts to get all that buildup on there, if you don't trim it, it smokes, it doesn't burn like it should, and it must be trimmed. And, you know, as, as, as the high priest came in and that lamp was there, he had to trim those wicks. But see, as it would re reignite again, it would also need more oil. And so the two jobs of, of the high priest, morning and evening was to trim the wicks and to, and to fill more oil so that the lamp could keep burning. And it says he was to do that before the Lord continually that it might keep burning. My brothers and sisters, I would, I would uh, 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 remind us 
that since we are represented as a part of that lampstand connected to Christ, that as we as priests come into the presence of God, we want to draw near. Our sin has been forgiven. We've been now giving a purpose on this world, in, the, in this world, and as we draw near, we come inside this private place. And we see the light shining before us. It says that it might give light before it. Part of its purpose is to take a look at ourselves, that we might see that crusty buildup of sin and disobedience in our own hearts. Not that we have to go get saved again, right? No, that was taken care of out in the outer courtyard. But see, in my private life, as one who belongs to Christ, as one who is a part of the lampstand, I have a responsibility to stop at the lampstand to make sure the proper trimming takes place. The Word of God, we're told in Hebrews, is sharper than a two-edged sword, meant to pierce all the way, like, like in a sword physically can divide between joints and marrow of the body. The Bible says that, it is alive and powerful, able to discern even the thoughts and intents of our heart. So that as we look into the mirror of God's word, through the light of God's word shining into our hearts, he can show us and say, uh, 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 here's a problem. Your affections are set on the wrong things in this world. Something else has taken God's place in your life, and it's causing the wick to flicker, to smolder. To smoke the light that God would like to produce in our lives for the world to see that they might be drawn to Christ is growing dim because we've not spent the right time with God in that private place with the light of his word having its work of purifying in our lives trimming away those parts that ought not to be there and that's hard isn't it I like the some of the things maybe there's some things in my life I'd like to just cut away but see those usually aren't the problem God allows trials to come to be able to reveal those thoughts and intents of our heart, that our affections are on the wrong things, that we're pursuing the wrong thing in life, that, that our priorities are out of focus. And, and he wants us to take the time to trim the wick of our hearts to say, I want a pure heart for you, O God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Cast me not away from your presence, but restore to me that joy. Psalm 51 so beautifully we see David's heart at wanting to see that wick trimmed. And what does God do? He does pour out his spirit. The Bible tells us, and I love this, as we go to, <clears throat> to our conclusion for today, I, I, you know, at 1 John chapter 1, he says, we have seen and handled the very word of God, the person of Christ. And he says, that which we've seen and heard, we are declaring to you so that you may have fellowship with us. You can share in this with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus Christ, his Son. And he says, so I'm writing these things to you that your joy may be full. What's the message? This is the message which we've heard from the beginning and declare to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. But if we say that we have fellowship with, with God, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship not only with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see what he's saying? As we come before the presence of God, alone in our own private relationship with Him, and we open God's Word and we spend time before Him, His light will shine into our hearts and reveal the places of darkness. But if we insist on walking in the light, we cannot 
cannot have fellowship with him. We lie. We do not practice the truth. We deceive ourselves. And I ask myself, and I would ask you, are we deceiving ourselves as to where we really are with Christ in our daily lives? Yes, on the outside, things look just fine. But what about the inside? It's a private work that he wants to do with the light, first of all, shining upon us. But he says, if we will just confess it, admit, God, you're right. That was covetousness. That was a lustful thought. That was a, a bitterness. That was unforgiveness. Name the sin so that he can forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that filling of the Holy Spirit that comes in again is that refreshing of oil to keep the lamp burning bright. And that's the message that I get from, 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 from Jesus when he speaks of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Martha was so distracted in her serving it wasn't worldliness off trying to run away from Christ. No, she was serving, but she was distracted in her serving. And Jesus said, look at Mary. She has seated herself at the feet of Christ, listening to his word. He said, this is the necessary thing, and I'll not take it away from her. Because there, she's having her wick trimmed. There, she's having a refilling of the spirit of God as she sees her sin and confesses it. And now she'll be ready for the work as she goes on to the next uh, 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 place of service for God as we draw near to God in this private place. And it's hard, isn't it? It says that it's a beaten lampstand. Not only was Christ beaten to become that lampstand, but you see, for us to be a part of it, there's going to be some purging, some beating. Colossians chapter 1 says, It has been granted unto you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Jesus said, If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and come follow me. But as we were reminded in the last service, great verse to, to end on. See, Jesus said, Are you weary and heavy laden? You're still trying to do all this on your own? You're stabbing in the dark? Come into the light. He said, Take my yoke upon you. As you come up and, and yoke up with Jesus, he carries the load. He deals with those things. But that hammering away, that trimming of the wick, he said, learn of me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He'll teach us to walk that way, step by step. And in so doing, we can become the priest who ministers to God and how God ministers to us that we might go out again into the courtyard of this world to be his light to the world around us. Do you know whether you're a part of that lampstand or not? Have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that he might graft you in? If you've not done that, I just want to encourage you to do that today. None of us are guaranteed our trip home. I don't want to scare us, but just a few days ago, Greg was with us. Today he's in eternity. And the most important thing that you could know is that your sin is forgiven. That you've come to that one gate, Jesus Christ, so that you may come to the place where he takes our place and dies and offers himself as our substitute to wash away our sin so that we can be cleansed, so that we can begin this relationship with him of, of not just knowing him but serving him here. And ultimately, our service continues as we go to be with him in heaven forever. And if you need any more help, and knowing how you can know that your sin is forgiven, please come see me before you leave today. See somebody. We'll be glad to introduce you. And believer, 
If you already know Christ, let us draw near with confidence that we might let his light shine in us, purge our sin, and we might shine ever brighter for him. Father, we commit to you this time. I thank you for the picture that's here. We have to, to ponder certain parts of this, Lord. But as we look in the totality of your word, we see so many confirmations of these truths. We know that there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. We know that there is no light in us, for the sin in our own lives make us full of darkness. And yet you would be pleased to let your light come and dwell with us and in us and shine out to the world and purify us to make us a people for your own possession. Thank you for loving us like you do, that you would desire even to dwell with us and make it possible that we could approach you. We thank you because it only comes in the name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, and it's in his name that we ask that you'd be glorified even as we leave this place and continue our day's uh, uh, activities.